Stay hungry, stay foolish. What makes your favorite nonfiction books so compelling, understandable, and enjoyable? Those works connect with you as a reader. When you recognize what's happening, you can apply those same methods to your own writing. Whether you're an expert trying to communicate with a mainstream audience or a nonfiction writer hoping to reach more people, our guest today offers us the insight we need to reach more people with our words. It's a great pleasure to welcome friend of The Innovation Show and author of Writing to Be Understood, What Works and Why, Anne Johnser. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan. I'm delighted to be back. It's so good to have you back, Anne. I have a copy here behind me. And just for our audience, I have a copy up for grab. Just sign up to innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in with a chance to win a copy of this brilliant book. So essential for those of you who are change makers and innovators out there. And I'll do a little twist on the book here because I know you're writing to be understood as an author, but the communication aspect of this is so essential, whether you're writing presentations or communicating abstract thoughts or concepts to somebody who doesn't understand them. So I thought it was so essential for that type of audience. One thing before we even start, I want to thank you profusely and for audience was so essential, a linchpin in me writing my own book. That's why I have them side by side there. And I don't usually do that. But it's to thank you for your huge contribution to the book. I hired Anne. I highly recommend anybody who's thinking of writing a book out there. Anne is brilliant. Her insights, her recommendations were second to none. So thank you so much, Anne. Oh, thanks, Aiden. I, I was delighted to work on it. And, you know, you see, I've got my product <laughs> placement there, too. But, you know, I, uh, it was wonderful. You, we can talk about how it relates, actually, to some of the topics in, in uh, writing to be understood, because it's all about, you know, the what effective communication and you do some things very well in this book. It's a great example of some of the techniques of that. Yeah, well, again, you encouraged me to go the right path. So for that, I'm deeply grateful. Let's share a bit about the context of this book, because in doing the research for the book, you started by surveying the writers you find particularly engaging and successful, a great tactic. Despite the diversity of styles and subject matters represented, the same methods and techniques appeared repeatedly. Stories, explanatory analogies, skillful use of details, figurative language, repetition, and much, much more. So I'm a huge nonfiction geek, right? I, I just, um, I love reading nonfiction. I love writing nonfiction. Um, I was also an English major in, in college. And so I think that gave me some of the tools to step back and look at what's happening, you know, look at imagery and look at metaphor and look at some of those things. Um, and when you start looking at a lens of, well, you know, how come... I like this author's book so much. What is it that they do different than this one, which I started and I put down because, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't, it didn't connect with me. Um, and that's fundamentally the thing that, that I got very interested in is that, um, so my first book I wrote or we talked about was the writer's process is what's going on in the, in the writer's head. But what we also need to understand as writers, as communicators, as innovators is what's going on in the reader's head or the listener's head, because that is where success lives. It doesn't live on the page. It doesn't live on that PowerPoint presentation. It lives on the impact that you have with someone. Um, so I started looking at, well, what is it that they're doing? Okay, this one's using a lot of, you know, this one uses metaphors. This one 
you can sometimes read a book, read a popular book, and you can almost see a, a formula. It's like, oh, they open every chapter with a story. They use a, you know, they have a foundational analogy they're using out throughout. They're, they're doing this. They're doing, you know, it's, you can almost start to see patterns of this stuff. And I don't, you know, I think if you start doing it that intentionally and formulaically, the reader will sense that. But I think a lot of this is things that people do naturally um, or we can add to our writing to make it land with more impact. Um, so that's that was the, the angle I took. It's like, well, how about the reader's head? And so we have these these techniques. We have, you know, well, why? Why is metaphor so powerful? You know, so then you go and you flip over and you look at the cognitive science about it. It's like, well, what's what's happening in the brain when someone reads this? What parts of their brain are firing off? Um, and so that was the set of uh, explorations. This book, I would pick off each of those um, strategies, those stylistic things and say, OK, let's look at this. Let's look at why it works. Let's look at how these authors use it. And let's look at how we can make this work in our own writing. How can we? Add it in so that I can write more like, you know, Dan Pink or Susan Cain. I'd love, to, I'd love to write more like them. So what do they do and how can I internalize that and be a little bit more uh, closer to what they do in terms of the impact of my work on the, on the right readers? So one of the reasons I have these books behind me, I have Michelle Walker's Grey Rhino. I also have her new book there. I have Dan Pink's book there. And I have Nir Yal, who's actually totally serendipitously next week's guest and so on this book indistractable so it's it's crazy how this how the serendipity happens the whole time with this show but the reason i have those there for our audience is and interviewed so many successful writers to get their perspectives as well so harnessed all this energy all these thoughts together to give us a, a story that really makes sense and really lands and that is one of my points here that Message sent must equals message received because it's not about just getting the book out there. It's actually getting the concepts into people's thoughts, into the people's heads. And you say to visualize this concept, imagine a Venn diagram for our writing topic with two overlapping circles. I thought this was really useful visual for people to understand this idea of message sent equals message received. We live in our own heads. <laughs> that's, that's where we are. Um, and so often we feel that uh, I have these things I want to say, you know, and I have these things about this project I want to tell people um, without stopping and thinking, eh, but what do they need to hear? What do they want to hear? Um, there's a whole chapter in this book, which <laughs> could be its own book. I started going down that, that route and I said, okay, this is its own book. I'm going to condense it back to a chapter. But it's about writing about for the difficult audience, for the audience who doesn't actually want to hear what you have to say. And, and what's the set of things that you can do to reach them? And, you know, holy cow, we have seen a lot of that um, kind of, you know, two worlds of discussion, you know, people talking to this audience, everybody preaching to the choir and and not effectively communicating across divides um, in the last X years. And I think that this is a really, you know, it's a tough thing. But again, if we understand a little bit about how we think and understand things, maybe we can start to make some forays into reaching people who don't who are not predisposed to agree with us about something that perhaps they're going to dig in more deeply about. 
So we might we might come back to that because I think that's a key point, like overcoming the resistance from the receiver, the message receiver, if you want to call them that. But let's dive in with a question you were asked right at the start. Who are your readers? And you have ways to kind of navigate this to understand. First is how choosing a narrow audience can actually broaden your reach. Why finding points of connection makes readers more receptive and indeed how to choose a specific audience in the first place. These are great starting points. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it all, you know, if you're going to be effective as a writer, you have to understand who you're having an effect on. You, you have to understand who the reader is. Uh, and one of the biggest issues I see with writers <laughs> is this tendency to think, everybody, everybody wants to, to read this thing. I I come from the marketing domain, and that was the same thing, too. Who is our customer? Well, everybody is our customer. Well, it's not. It's never everybody, right? Um, and even if it is uh, even if it is a broad audience, you are much better served by choosing and speaking to and meeting the needs of a distinct group um, because then they become the people who spread your work. The example I'd like to give of this uh, is uh, Marie Kondo and her life-changing magic of tidying up, right? So this book is written for people who are willing to take all of their possessions, pile them in the room, and, you know, analyze whether each one gives them joy. I'm going to say fundamentally that's a not a huge – she didn't come out and say everyone in the world wants to do this. You know, these were the people who were hiring her as clients, I believe, in Japan when she first published it. But she met their no needs so well and wrote so effectively for them that other people found value from it. Uh, across the Atlantic, she's got a Netflix special, right? And she didn't come out. So, you know, she wrote effectively for them. Um, I think there's often a mis there's a misperception that if you choose an audience or a specific reader, you are excluding others. And that is fundamentally a myth. It's you are you are simply putting out a welcome mat and really focusing on landing with as much impact as you can with that audience. And when you do that, it ripples outward, and it does help you expand your impact. One of the things, Anne, that was really helpful, and you mentioned earlier on the idea of connecting with the audience, you said, e even as we define a target audience and understand their differences, we must remember the roles and identities we share. So it's looking for that shared ground. And this is where I see such a an overlap with innovation work is that you look for common ground because that's the place you can build from. And you say that perspective will be invaluable if you want to forge a stronger connection with the absent reader because they're not there in front of you. You don't have those feedback loops that come from the physical, the visual, seeing did they like what I said, et cetera, et cetera. This is a key point of your work. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I think the more that we can show up even as as human, as real in our um, writing, you know, the, the, the authors that I most enjoy, I don't feel like I know them personally by reading the book, but I feel like I know a part of them. I feel like we've gone on this journey. There's, there's almost a, a certain kind of intimacy of, you know, oh, wow, they have those thoughts. I have those thoughts. They had this experience. It relates to my experience. It's a point of connection. Um, you know, I think there's a communion, communion and communication are very close in words. And I think that there's there's something there. Communi communication is about making these connections. 
Um, so to look for those common areas, and you may say, well, you know, Anne, that's interesting, but, you know, I'm innovating in blockchain, Bitcoin, something, I don't know, you know, there's no place for that. But there is, there, there especially is, I think that the more abstract <laughs> and geeky, you know, your the thing is that you're talking about, the more important it is that you bring your human self along with it. Because the readers, you know, the part of the reader's brain that's focused on that processing all that abstract uh, what's happening in the blockchain or whatever is probably, you know, steaming and smoking as you're talking to them. It's working so hard. And when you can bring something personal, uh, you are engaging other parts of the brain start to line up to add some support to to bring them more present with your message. So I think it's even more important if you're you're in the the business or the scientific domain or the technical domain to be real and be present uh, so that you're engaging more of the user's brain, your the reader's brain, you're having more of an impact. Yeah, I, I thought about that for from my own perspective, and you were coaching me on this to lean into that part because I was very reticent about actually writing anything personal. And and it was one of the reasons I wrote this book, Undisruptable, in the first place was because I read so many books on innovation and they're very frameworky and they can be the language can be esoteric and push the reader away. And I was like, oh, I want to create these analogies and stories that actually help the reader go, ah, is that all it is? And what was really helpful was when you talked about, for example, the absent reader, I envisaged it the other way around that I'm the absent writer. They don't know who the heck I am. So if they can picture a vision of me from their side and kind of go, oh, he's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him, a, I'll give him, I'll give him an hour, you know, to read, etc. That, that, that it's that union. You mentioned the word communion coming together of those two different people to actually forge a bond that they'll stay with you on the journey all the way through the book. Yeah, absolutely. And and it doesn't take a lot. It just takes you have a great story about your kid in the bathtub and the waves, you know, <laughs> I, I right? And as soon as you read that. So so here's a perfect example. It is showing up as a a human being. You're giving us a window into something about your personal life. Um it's also um a common a story that's easy to visualize. The story actually has, to me, if you've ever given a child a you know a bathtub thing, it has a sensory perspective. I, I remember what that feels like. I remember what the water sloshing feels like, holding the kid as they're about to you know wipe out because you've made too big a wave. Um, all of those things. Um, so all sorts of my brain fired up when you when I read that story, and now I had a connection to you, the author, um, that if I didn't know you, would have been a you know a more meaningful connection and yet it also underscored the point that you were making so it was also a nice little metaphor that provided some clarification some illustration of something that is otherwise abstract so um for me what i found in your book was a masterful use of metaphor uh, because you used a lot of metaphors that were inherently interesting of themselves um that provided visual and other sensory connections. And so the act of reading a book that has that stuff in it, that has a personal connection to the author, that has uh, somatosensory content uh, is just more fun. It's, it's simply more fun. And that, hence, it's going to be more memorable. 
I remember the story about that, you know, it's going to be more enjoyable and I'm more likely to really give it my attention and stay with it. There's, um, you, you talk a lot about your work and uh, about neuroscience and uh, the cognition of everybody. And I, I find that so fascinating, you know, with the, your last book that we covered as well, the writer's process, you talked about the muse and the scribe, and that was really a great visual for me because I, I had this vision of the, uh, the muse there with all these crazy ideas. Hey, I got this idea and the scribe going, shut up. I'm trying to make progress here and write them down. And they're, they're fighting with each other in this room, you know, by candlelight and the scribes there with his quill poking, <laughs> poking at the muse to go, shut up. So th that's, that's how powerful that was for me. But that brings me to the idea of cognition and neuroscience. Because really, the, the message that really got from your work was the idea of empathy for the other side. And you talk about cognitive empathy, which refers to the ability to take the other person's perspective. And you say, when we use terms like, ah, I see where you're coming from, they are claiming cognitive empathy there. Effective empathy then is another thing that the ability to summon the appropriate emotional response for another person's emotional state the common refrain there you say is, I feel your pain. And this is so powerful. And I think even doing that as a writer and getting that message across is so important. I'd love if you'd share a little bit more about this. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, that the, the path to success, of, I mean, empathy is such a powerful tool to bring to writing. Um, and one of the interesting bits of research that I as I was researching this, um, I found the uh, Alan Alda Institute for Scientific Communication. So Alan Alda is the actor, of course, um, and he had a gig on PBS and a science show, and he found himself talking with all these scientists and figuring, why is it so hard for them to explain what they're doing to me? You know, what's what's how do we how do we improve scientific communication? Was his question, um, and he has through the uh, uh, Stony Brook University in New York. Um, developed this set of improv-like exercises that he does with groups of physicians or researchers or scientists. I mean, they take this show on the road and it's fantastic. And they have them do these improv things that are very much focused on partner work, um, coming up with the same word that your partner is about to say, tossing things back and forth. And what it really does is it puts them in this active thinking about the other person and you know, trying to exp uh, develop their empathy for what that person is in that moment. So after doing these exercises, then they have these folks get up and talk about their research or their subject. And the difference is night and day because they have empathetically thought about another person's perspective, even not in the context of their work. And it changes their communication patterns. So I thought that was fascinating um, uh, to learn about what they're doing. And that's just sort of this great example about how important it is as us to be for writers or communicators of any type to be empathetic with the people that we are communicating with that we hope to reach to take their perspective and it, it perspective taking is all i ask you don't actually have to feel their pain you, you don't you don't need the affective it's lovely if you have it but you know too much in in, in really dire situations too much affective empathy could be a problem. You know, I mean, maybe some of the people who are working on these vaccines didn't really need to think about the suffering. They just needed to think about how am I going to get 
this, deliver this? How am I going to do it in a way that works for people? Um, uh, so, uh, but the act of doing that really helps us then figure out what, what tools we need, how is it we need to approach, even what we need to say and what we need to leave out. I mean, I think the worst, the most common thing I see in a lot of sort of business or technical books is this, what I'm going to call self-indulgent writing. And it's self-indulgent only because they haven't taken into consideration my needs as a reader, right? Um, it's like, here's all the things I want to say about this, and I'm going to cite all the research, and I'm going to, you know, whatever. It's it, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm bored because you're not thinking about my needs as a reader. Um, and if I'm in your target audience, that's bad news. If I'm not in your target audience, that's life, right? That That's on me. <laughs> that's on me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so empathy is is such a powerful sh- strategy, you know, and, and it's something that we can develop. It's not you're either an empathetic person or you're not. When I'm talking about cognitive empathy, um, it's as simple as you can do some exercises that don't even involve improv. Um, with I, The way I structured this book, I have sort of one chapter on each topic. And at the end, I have sort of some exercises that you can do to experiment with it. Uh, you can find those. There's a, a link on my website where you can download a handout. I made 20 pages just of the exercises. So if you want to mess around with that, um, it's on my website in the resources section. You scroll down to look for the book cover of writing to be understood, and it's right there in bold underneath. You can just download that and experiment. But you can you can write yourself an email as if you were your target reader. And what questions would they ask of you? It's you think that's a weird exercise, Anne. But when you do it, you get at some really interesting things. All of a sudden, you're like, oh yeah, they might think this. Oh, maybe they don't understand that. Oh, maybe they're curious about that. Um, it's just a little exercise you can do, you know, even alone in your room to develop perspective for, for uh, someone else. I love it, and uh, it's anjanzer.com, A-N-N-E, just for those uh, who want to download that now. Back to the arc, because you mentioned there the idea of empathy and understanding the other side. And I I just love this concept of message sent doesn't always equal message received, just to be aware of that. And one of the great uh, exercises that you cite, a study, a psychological study you cite in the book, is by Elizabeth Newton. And I thought we'd actually do it here. So this is the tapping experiment, Anne. So the reason I, I say that is, I I often do this with my kids and I go, guess what song this is? <laughs> I'll hum a song. And there are certain songs when you hum them, they sound all exactly the same. But uh, I'll give you one here right on the microphone. And and for anybody who is listening to the show, just bear in mind, I'm, I'm going to be tapping on the mic here. I'll edit it anyway, so it doesn't blast the ears off you. But here it is. Okay, so here's my song and you have to guess what it is. So here we go. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah. And that is the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was Jingle Bells, by the way. So I, <laughs> Jingle Bells. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's it. You know, it's uh, and this, you know, if you ever have this experience, like humming, you know, my husband and I were doing the other day, this the other day. It's like, don't you remember this song? And he'd hum the line. But without the instrumentals and the, the context, I I can't, you know, and it's so clear in his head. Yeah. So, you know, this uh exercise was the perfect example of the curse of knowledge, which is that we hear this stuff in our head and we think you should get it really quickly because it's easy for us, you know, jingle bells. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's a great exercise and uh, it really brings the message home that like in your head i'm i'm there not only do i hear jingle bells but i see santa going on the sleigh i see the snowscape all that kind of stuff but let's move on because connection is so important when you're writing and you caution that we ignore emotion at our peril because emotion creates that connection to even yeah to evoke and uh, thoughts from people to connect with them so you're able to actually get your message across and you say numerous psychological studies have proven the link between emotion learning and memory if we want to change somebody's opinion or influence their behavior then it's even more critical that we understand what's going on behind the analytical mind so we have to ap appeal to the emotional mind if you think about it the soul analytical parsing all this abstract stuff is the last developed part of our brain evolutionarily, right? So it's, um, it's only marginally in control. <laughs> and the emotional side, uh, all of all everything else is is very fundamental. And yet we tend to ignore it, we tend to ignore it. And the problem too, is um, there may be emotions there that we don't even see that we are activating with our use of metaphor, for example, um, or we may be, you know, writing for an audience that already has a, a very emotional feeling about our subject, but not think about that and just let me show you more data. It's like, well, data is never going to be emotion. Let, let's just put that out there. <laughs> Forget it. Data won't win in a fight between emotion and data. Emotion wins every time. Um, so uh, we need to part of the empathy with our audience is about understanding what they might be bringing to the table for emotions. Part of it is about acknowledging emotions, maybe connecting emotions. That's one of the reasons why um, story is so powerful as a way to communicate on topics. I mean, I know you had a guest recently talking about business storytelling, Janine Kernoff, right? Mm. Um, it's so fundamental because it just lets us bypass the analytical for a moment. Let something sit with our brains in the way that we are naturally programmed to make sense of the world, which is story. We are we are storytelling animals. Our brains do this without even our uh, awareness. So if as a writer or a communicator, you can tell a story, now you've you've synchronized up a little bit with the emotional state, with the context, and then you let the analytical brain look back at the story and say, ha, okay, there's the pattern I see. This is something I've learned from it. Um, that's why, you know, researching this book, I really came, I mean, I always knew story was important. I always knew it. And I always kind of like, yeah, I'm not good at it. I'll just brush that under the rug. You know, <laughs> researching this book, I'm like, okay, storytelling is super important. I cannot brush it under the rug. Um, it is the most one of the most powerful tools that we have at our disposal for communication is is telling a story um, and it doesn't have to be a big you know huge narrative arc um, it can be something pretty simple but just something to connect with someone um, on a level that lets them bring their emotions and then apply their own reasoning processes to it rather than us telling them what to think they can draw their conclusions about what to think so story there, for example, um, you, you use that as a tool to pique interest as well, to pique curiosity. And you share how curiosity is your accomplice 
and theories of curiosity as pain and pleasure. I love this chapter. You tell us it's tough to get people curious about topics in which they have little background knowledge. So curiosity requires a d- degree of familiarity. This aspect of writing is so core to success. Well, you know, curiosity was one of my most fun chapters to uh, research, right? Because it's uh, how, what what does make us curious, you know? And there are these theories that there's there's two form, two types. One is that curiosity is a little bit of a pain. You you give someone a little bit of a gap, and then you fill it. Right. So it's, it's satisfying, it's satisfying the itch, I guess, is then if you want to think about it. Um, and then there's another theory, and I think these are both true. I think they're just different approaches is that, um, it's the, the joy of, of learning something new as well. It's just the benefit. You're going to learn this thing. Don't you want to know this thing? Yes, I do. Um, uh, I, you know, find a lot of, uh, I mean, the reason you pick up a book about a topic isn't like, Oh, I have this itch. I have to know about it. It's like, I'd like to, this would be fun. This would be fun. Um, learning and satisfying curiosity is inherently fun. Uh, so one of the things that is a really interesting thing to look at when you're writing and, and not emulate, but learn from is the, the, the strategies of clickbait headlines, right? You know, they're really, really terrible, cheesy headlines. You can see exactly what they're doing and you can see Sometimes still you're like, oh, I am tempted to click through. It's like, you know, he did this and you won't believe what happened next. Oh, do tell what happened next. Um, when you see that effect on yourself as you read those headlines, that's a really powerful lesson. It's like, oh, this is how powerful this is. I can learn something from that. I can take something from that without going all cheesy clickbait, right? I can take something from that. And uh, as I write, and I think especially... Things like titles and opening paragraphs and things. This is where you really need to make sure that you're feeding the curiosity that's going to get people into your work. Um, I know that, you know, maybe if you're giving a presentation, you've got people for a little bit of time. Although I'm guessing most of us decide about five minutes in whether we're just going to zone out or pay attention, right? So you still need to do this early on. Some of your first work. Uh, is not to say, let me tell you all the great things about my idea, is, but is to engage the, the reader or the listener's curiosity, because then they're going to bring themselves to really pay attention and listen. So I think we need to think about that with titles. We need to think about that with openings um, and bring that to the work very early if we can, which is, you know, sometimes none of this, let me just rush to say, happens in the first draft. Okay. It just don't, you know, it sounds like I'm giving you telling about all these things you should be doing. It all almost all happens in revision. As you know, Aiden, it's like you go back, you write your thing and that's like, well, let's, let's move things around. Let's see how this is going to work and land. It doesn't come out the way that you see on the page for any author or nearly any author. So just, you know, take the weight off of that, off of that. Yeah, one of, one of the things for me was, do you remember, I don't know if you remember, I I had a deadline and I'd, and I'd finished. And then I was looking at it, it's going, going, the whole book's the wrong way around. And, uh, and I ripped out an entire section. Actually, one thing that I was very good at because of you and you encouraged it, but also I'd read about this was hitting that delete key. And the way I did it was I had a board with all the chapters as post-it notes. And I just 
crumpled them up and threw them away. But you helped me a lot with that. But I wanted to share a great bias because I had a whole section in on bias. There's a bias called the IKEA effect, named after the furniture company, where when you build it, you uh, you attribute more value to it. <laughs> and I thought about that with writing that you've built it. This is your baby, and you've written it, and it's very hard to delete it. But what you talk about is just reframe that, just relocate it. Yeah, yeah. Don't 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 throw it away. Just find it a new home. It can be a blog post, something like that. But you know, ultimately, your aim is to serve the reader and the structure. And I have to tell you, since that time, Aiden. Um, I did this big survey of nonfiction authors, like 400 and something nonfiction authors responded to the survey I did. And I asked them um, how many of how closely did your book match your finished book match the outline? And and almost nobody. I think the number who was a perfect match was like six percent. Six percent. So the fact that you were partway through and then had to shift your outline, you know, matches my experience with every book I've written, it matches the experience, you know, some of them had uh, minor outline changes, and about a quarter of them was a whole new outline. This is, we don't know until we're well into the work, if we have been doing this work of trying to take the reader's perspective. If we have been doing that, then essentially in the writing, we've been living with the reader for a while as well. And so we're partway through and we're like, you know, this is how I thought it should be structured. But it's not really going to serve the reader. This would serve the reader better to change it this way. So I think it's a really healthy sign when you have to stop and rejigger the outline as you did, although it's unfortunate that, you know, it, <laughs> it came on a deadline. However, let me tell you, now having done that research, I know that editors everywhere fully expect that deadline to slip and they haven't seen you restructure your outline. So yeah. they're waiting for it too. They yeah. know it's happening. <laughs> I, I call them uh, Disneyland queue deadlines where it's like you think you're at the top and then it's like, oh my God, I have another <laughs> massive That's fair. right. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, great. I wanted to, to introduce uh, a, a thought next, which is, um, so, and, and by the way, just on, on that, like for one of the reasons I wanted to do the show, A, the, the understanding of communication to communicate concept concepts, maybe abstract concepts, etc. But the other also, since I wrote the book, so many people reached out to me and they're so fearful of writing a book. And I'm like, oh, please just do it. Just get it started. And the way I visualized it was it's a block of wood or stone and you're just sculpting away. There's something in there. And like you said earlier on, you'll eventually find a template. And that's where you were such a great coach, kind of going, yeah, I like what's kind of coming out of the the chaos here. There's some order coming on the chaos. And that was really, really helpful. And I just really want to encourage people to listen to the show. Do it. Don't regret it. Go for it. So I know, yeah. uh, and this drives you as well. It does. It does. In fact, I think that was my, you know, my, my most recent book was about you know, if you've got something important to share with the world, if you, you know, you want to make a difference with your ideas, go ahead, write the book. It's, it's, don't, you know, it's, it is in almost every case, a really transformative experience. Um, and again, I did this survey and I asked people, you know, how many of the published authors did this meet your personal expectations and did it meet your business expectations? And, you know, 90% it met or exceeded their personal expectations and and close to that their their professional expectations as well. Um, it sometimes it it delivers it, it doesn't deliver the things that you thought 
it delivers different benefits. And that's the really, really interesting part of it. Um, but if you're willing to go on that journey and really a- approach it, as you did with your book, it's a, I think the best writers, nonfiction writers, take us on a journey of discovery that they go through themselves. They're not just spewing everything they know onto the page and putting it out. They're on this, it, it is transformative as they write. Um, and then we as readers are transformed as well. Yeah, that, that was a huge thing for me. And I read once that when you're buying a piece of art, you're not buying a picture. You're actually buying the transformation of the artist during that period. So that's actually why, why there's such value on on a work of art. But I felt that myself massively writing the book that particularly the last chapter, which is about letting go of things. I I got so much value from that personally, and it helped me reframe so many aspects in my own life, hurts and pains that I was hanging on to, and it helped me really let go of them. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, there's nothing like writing the book to internalize it in a whole different level, right? That's fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was uh, I, great. I've, keep writing about writing because I hope it's going to make me a better writer. And I'm improving with every book. <laughs> I was getting at this because like people are, are still going, oh, where do I start? God damn you. <laughs> you guys are going on about it. Where do I start? And uh, we talked about firstly, you know, narrowing in on the audience, empathy, etc. But now you say before Bill, I love how you phrase this before building an edifice of understanding in the reader's brain, before you begin the work, you have to do a site survey of your audience's understanding of the topic. Let's share how we might start with this to understand, well, how much do they know? How deep do I go, et cetera, et cetera? Right. I mean, it's you're 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 coming to build a house on on a lot, but that lot may not be empty, right? So there there could be a shed over here. There could have been the start of a foundation here. Um, rarely as as authors or communicators are we approaching a pristine field with nothing on it. Um, so, because why is the reader going to be there if they know zero about it, unless you're doing an intro something topic? Um, so you always have to, to start with understanding what it is they know, they understand. Do they have preconceived conception, you know, preconceived ideas about this? Um, because if you don't understand them and address them, um, they will have this unfinished. It's like, but I knew this thing and you haven't explained that. You haven't addressed that. So um, they will feel, you know, unsatisfied, uh, open conflict in their head. Um, And so, again, cognitive empathy gets at this, this exercise to sort of figure out, well, if I'm writing for this audience, where are they coming from? It it comes even things like what... um, what language will they understand? If I use this terminology, will it be unfamiliar to them? Am I adding a lot of cognitive load? Am I giving them extra processing work that isn't necessary because I could use other words? Or um, a lot of them, will English not be their first language? Um, so that if I want to impress and dazzle with my long, elegant sentence constructions, maybe I will be losing those readers. Um, because again, I'm asking them to do too much heavy lifting mentally to assemble the sentence. Um, and so they're working on that rather than understanding the brilliance of my ideas, <laughs> things that I want to land with them, right? Yeah. Um, so this idea, uh, you know, one of the things to understand is this idea of cognitive load, which is how much 
mental processing parsing work are you putting on their executive functioning part of their brain because we are all slightly overstressed <laughs> in our lives and so can you alleviate that to keep their focus on the message and not on the the packaging yeah and that's so useful i i think in in this day and age as well of the data onslaught that people experience that's one of the reasons I kept the chapter so light, like you did as well in this book and your previous books, because it's almost like, well, you can read a chapter over a coffee. So I'm not asking too much. I'm not overloading you too much, et cetera, et cetera. But this highlights something, which is the illusion of knowledge. And you share that we cannot possibly know everything we need to know. So we rely on other experts to understand things for us. However, we unconsciously claim ownership of expertise that doesn't live in our own heads. Let's explain this because you share a great study by Rosenblit and Kyle to unveil our tendency for the illusion of explanatory depth. <laughs> so this is something we need to understand um, about our readers and also about ourselves. But as, as writers, we find out about it really quickly about ourselves, which is this. We think we know things more than we do. And I think the study had to do with um, toilets, right? <laughs> toilets. So you and you know how a toilet works. I know how a toilet works. Do you, if you sit down to explain the physics of exactly how the toilet works when you hit the lever, what is all, what's happening, and why? You'll suddenly realize uh, uh, you hit the lever and it works. You know, I mean, you don't you don't know. Some of your listeners may, but most of us are kind of like, uh, call the plumber. You know, if <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, so we feel very comfortable and we could not survive in this world. I mean, if we if we didn't seed the detailed understanding of stuff to others, you know, how would we possibly we have to trust the airplane mechanics, we have to trust, you know, all kinds of things uh, so that we can understand things at a very cursory level and go about our lives. Um, but when you sit down to write about a topic, that's when you bump right into, oh, wait, I, I thought I understood this, but how do I explain it? You know, this is where you start doing research um, because uh, you run into your own illusion of explanatory depth. But what can happen then is if you are writing for someone, again, they're bringing those same perceptions. It's like, well, of course I know about how, you know, this this technology works or this product works or you know i've used it using my whole career <laughs> you know so how do you how do you get around that you don't as a as a writer it's rarely a good strategy to make someone feel stupid <laughs> it's like no you don't you don't tell them trust me you don't know this um they won't really want to read your book so again if you're trying to get around this then you need to look at some of these other tactics you need to look at curiosity find something that might pique their interest that they don't understand about this thing that they think they understand, now you've gotten into explaining this topic um, or tell a story that seems puzzling or interesting and illuminates something that they didn't know and while making them, you know, smarter about it by by teaching them something. Um, so it's there is a whole book uh, on this topic called The Knowledge Illusion, and I interviewed one of the authors of that, and it, I just thought it was I loved I love this stuff. I love this stuff about how our brains, you know, the boundary of our knowledge is not contained in here. It's it's in the world. Um, uh, I thought that was a fascinating, fascinating idea. You interviewed a guy called Dr. Stephen Sloman, and you talked to him about recognizing the range of values of your readership. This is really important, particularly 
if you cast a judgment too early and you're very specific with that judgment. So you have to acknowledge a wide range of options or values in order not to alienate people because they'll just put the book down straight away. Yep. This is a really important aspect. This is a, really a critical aspect, I think, is that one of the things that we're sometimes blind to is our own value systems and how they might not match with others. Um, there's an, an author, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote the book called uh, The Righteous Mind, which is another fantastic book. Um, and he talks about the fact that we have, he calls them moral taste buds, that we have different really fundamental uh, ethics and, and morals, the things that really are important to us. And just like taste buds, you know, it could be that you love spicy food and I don't. And so, or I don't taste some things other people taste, right? We know that we, we can acknowledge and understand that we have different taste buds, right? No, no one takes issue with that. He says the same thing is true for some of these deep values. And one of the issues I mentioned earlier about writing or talking across the divide um, is that when groups are disagreeing, sometimes it's because this one has a different set of moral taste buds than this one. And they don't see that in each other. And if you're going to do something other than to preach to the choir about your subject, you need to understand and maybe address some of those and acknowledge, acknowledge some of those other moral taste buds. And we see evidence of this playing out around us all the time when people are just, you know, shouting their opinion. How can you not see that this is wrong? And the other side is, how can you not see that this is wrong? It's because we're working to different uh, ideas of right and wrong, and and that's um, you know along different these different moral taste buds. So I think if you're writing or talking about things that might trigger people's deeper emotional responses, it's important to understand this concept of moral taste buds. I'd suggest you read *The Righteous Mind*. It's a fantastic book. After I'd written the book, I mentioned so many people reach out to you, and it's not with a "How did you do it?" or how did you navigate it? Really, what the question often is, is how did you overcome the fear or the fear of judgment? And people ask that even about I write a weekly blog, as you know, and they kind of go, you know, what if somebody doesn't like it? And I was like, if you write for yourself, firstly, it's a, an amazing way to learn because you organize your thinking. And like you said, with the with the toilet analogy, the illusion of knowledge, you actually figure out, do I actually know what that is? Can I, can I articulate that simply? So that's one of the real reasons I did it. But I wanted to bring this back to something we touched on earlier on, which is succeeding with a tough audience. And here you share some tips and explore three types of potential resistance that we may encounter. Anything that you write. Anything that you write, even if it's about, uh, you know, pretty, uh, it's a fiction piece or something, um, there's always, your audience is always essentially a kind of a bell curve, right? Uh, that most people are going to, assuming you're marketing it and putting it in front of the right people, most people are generally going to like it. Few are going to be super avid fans at one end of the bell curve. And at the other end, they're going to be those who are like, yeah, no, mm, ah, don't like it. So it's a numbers game. So you're always going to hear some amount of negative feedback. That is the world we live in today. You're going to get those bad reviews on Amazon. You're going to be, you know, <laughs> the writer's process. I had gotten a review. I shared a story of this in my most recent review. I paid for a review from Kirkus, and the review came back saying, why would anyone write a book on this subject? And wow. writing was lugubrious. I'm like, oh, thank you, bam. You know, so, so. 
Um, so for that, that kind of negative feedback, I'd say, you know, you are writing to serve a specific audience. And if, if, if your people all around your core audience are giving you negative feedback, then you're missing your mark. But if the people are not really in your core audience, then you can just say, yep, that's on the bell curve somewhere. That's, that's where that lies. And that's fine. Okay. So that's one set of just any kind of writing, the fear of it. You know, yes, of course you're going to get, there will be people who don't like it. That's, that's the nature of it. But if we focus on serving that audience, then it's easier to let go. It's not about us. It's about the work and it's about how the work lands with that audience. And so if there are other naysayers around you, you can let that go. You have to let that go. That's how you do creative work in the world. You have to be willing to let it go. Um, then there's writing for the tough topics. There's writing specifically for the audience to try to convince people to change their mind or to take a different tack. So this, you know, you're going to hit a lot more resistance. Um, and it can be that they think that they know already. They've made up their mind. Um, they uh, don't want to be challenged on something. Uh, you're, they, they have a deep, strong conviction. And so for these people, you have to assume your success rate is going to be much smaller. And you are brave and you are doing good work to do it. And you need to get your support crew lined up behind you saying, yes, this is good work. But then you need to be careful not just to write to your support crew, not just to preach to the choir, but to turn and write to these other folks. Um, and here you need to use uh, all of the techniques I write about in this book. You need to use story to connect on an emotional level. You need to use, you need to acknowledge other values and viewpoints. You need to show up as a human being. You need to find the common ground. And here, I think, you know, your your writer's bell curve is going to be skewed to people who don't like it, but you're chasing the bit that you can influence, which is the ones who are more receptive. And you can, again, I think it takes skilled writing or intentional use of this, intentional use of empathy, of writing strategies to reach beyond your uh, your easy, to reach beyond an easy audience to those who are tougher. And yet it's important, you know, as we've seen in the world today, it's important work to um, to bridge those divides, to communicate about important topics that that we need to understand and to try to to reach people. So one of my hopes in writing this book, frankly, was that I could give it, you know, put it in front of perhaps scientists to help them maybe communicate a little bit better about the tough topics that people don't want to hear about or things like that to help arm people who have the important knowledge. The world is really complex, right? It's a complicated place and we need experts of all kinds, but we need them to be able to communicate with us in a way that lands. And one thing you, you mentioned there was complexity. And I think this is so important. And one of the reasons I was so keen to share this book with, a, with a, an audience that may deal with new concepts, maybe they're startup founders, maybe they're heads of innovation, maybe they're introducing new business models. And I wanted to tee you up for this with a quote, with an extract from the book. You say, human beings are adept at abstraction. We see a variety of chairs and easily group them into categories, office chair, furniture, things that have four legs, etc. But we need to take care. Just because we're all naturals at abstract reasoning does not mean that it's always easy to read and understand abstractions. Now that in itself 
will raise people's curiosity to go, how can I deal with that? And I thought this would be a great way to finish because, as you said, the world's complex. It's full of abstractions. We need to be clear. We need to be empathetic. There's so much in this question. I come from a technology background where we're writing and communicating about really abstract ideas that are hard to visualize. Um, and obviously, there's no no other way to do it in technology. It's it's all virtual. And yet, um, we need to remember that uh, the part of our brain that's dealing with these abstractions, that's taking them and unpacking them, is the uh, prefrontal cortex, right? It's doing a lot of heavy lifting every time you throw a term, an, an abstract term at them. Um, and so what I find, especially when I work with a lot of business writers or people writing about technology or science or really honestly, almost anyone in academia, right? They have all mastered all of these abstractions and they trot them out. It's like, you know, look at, look at this. This is how all these abstractions come into play. Um, and the problem is, is that puts a lot of cognitive load on the reader's one part of their brain to unpack all of that, especially, especially if it's not really familiar to them. Their colleagues may be perfectly happy you know, tossing it around with all this terminology, but the rest of the world has to do extra work. And we're all overloading one part of the brain, um, of the reader's brain. So one of the most, one of the easiest ways to make your writing more interesting and accessible is to alternate those abstractions with specific examples, right? Just, just if you're talking about, uh, chairs, you know, talking about the, uh, the, the big black office chair I have that swivels, you know, you provide something visual, something tactical in an, in, in an explanation. Um, fiction writers will call this the telling detail, right? You don't just say he went into the office. Uh, he, they say he entered a room with, you know, there's green leather, bank, you know, chair, you give, you give people something to build a picture. Um, and, uh, I was working with a writer yesterday who said on a blog post, you know, I cry at films. I'm like, give an example of a film that you cry at. I cry at Bambi. Okay. That tells me that's so much more powerful, right? It's a, it's a different, uh, explanation. Um, so where you can in your revision process, look at some of those abstractions and swap in very specific details. And then what happens is those details give people, uh, other parts of their brains start lighting up. So if I say I cry at Bambi, I have a visual image of Bambi, right? I may remember that and then that really sad scene as a kid. So maybe I have an emotional image of that as well. Um, uh, I, I now feel a more personal connection with this person because they said they cried at that part as opposed to just I cry at films. It's like, okay, you know, so more parts of my brain are engaged in the reading. And you know, do you want to write for a really small part of the reader's brain or do you want their whole brain lighting up and paying attention when they're reading? Personally, I'm going for the second because I think I'm going to have a much larger impact on their thoughts, on their memories, um, if more of their brain is involved. So it's a really easy way that anyone who's writing about business or technology or anything um, can liven up their writing is just to you know, dial back on a few of the abstractions and put in some very specific examples um, or details or use, you know, if you can't 
show people a specific case of a DNS server, but you could you could just explain a metaphor then. It's it's like, you know, the telephone directory sending you in the right direction or something. Where can people find you? You mentioned, for example, the download that goes with writing to be understood. Where can people find you? So you can find uh, my books and my blog posts about writing at my website, which is annjanzer.com, A-N-N-E, janzer.com. Um, and if you click through to the resources section, you'll find resources that go along with my various books, including the download of all the methods in writing to be understood. So uh, hopefully if you don't want to get a peek at what really all these things are that we've talked about on this call today, you can look at that download and see if that makes sense. Author of Writing to be Understood, What Works and Why, Anjanzer, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back.